Um, again, my name's Tyler. I'm on staff here. Uh, I just want to echo what Bland said. If it's your first time or you're newer, would really encourage you. There's a connection card on the seat. Definitely fill that out and, and drop that off um, in the offering basket as it passes by. Or the connection table after the service would love to meet you. Myself, some other people on staff, probably some of the pastors or staff members or um, just members of the church will be there too. Would love to um, connect. Um, so uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've been in the book of Genesis for what seems like five years. Um, we'll be in the book of Genesis for five more years. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we're kind of inching our way towards the halfway point. Genesis 25 is the halfway point, And I promise the second half of the book is going to go a lot quicker than the first half. Um, but it's honestly been kind of nice to go like really slowly through this like kind of massive book like this, to just kind of slow down and ask the question, like, God, what are you... What are you doing and what are you saying to us here? You know, these events, these characters, these circumstances, these situations, these, these words written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Like, what are you saying through them to us today? And so um, it's my hope that we do that today, um, that we just kind of ask the question, God, what are you saying to us today? And so if you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis 19. Um, we'll be in Genesis 19, verse 30, all the way through the end of chapter 20. Um, and I'm going to read Genesis 19 first, and we're going to talk about it, and then we'll move into um, Genesis 20 after that. Um, so Genesis 19, verse 30 onward. I'll read this, and at the end I'll say this is the word of the Lord, if you respond by saying thanks be to God. Genesis 19, verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us, after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you may go in and lie with him, that we may preserve his offspring so they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and, did not, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing I do when I'm preparing a sermon, besides just kind of praying for it, is, is I read the passage, just one kind of read through, and I just write down, like, what, how does this make me feel? Like, what, what emotion does this stir? I wrote down icky. The second thing I do is I read it a second time, and I ask the same question. I try to dig a little deeper. The second time I wrote down yucky. The third time I actually started to catch on to some things. Um, I think when you look at this passage in light of kind of what's happened over the previous chapters, um, we actually see that this passage is kind of a summation of all of Lot's decisions. This is Lot's kind of final um, time he's mentioned in the book of Genesis, and it's really just all of his decisions have kind of led him to this point. And I think all of us um, can kind of understand that, right? That, that concept that all your decisions lead to a certain point in time or to where you are now. Right? Or at least we can pinpoint a few that maybe kickstarted the whole process. I was thinking about this idea in my own life as I was just processing through this, and I was like, okay, where am I today? Like living in Brookline, Boston, in this city, and um, uh, my, my wife and my child, like how did I get here? And um, I actually traced it back to a, a field trip or a trip in ninth grade um, where I visited a city for the first time um, and actually kind of stayed in the city. And I'm, I'm sure I could trace it back farther if I wanted to, but I went to New York City with, with a, a family friend and 
We actually like, stayed in the city, right? We used the metro, we ate at the restaurants there, we kind of, the sights, the sounds, the people, we kind of did all the things, and this trip in ninth grade kind of stirred my affection for cities, um, stirred my love for cities. And so over the course of, of high school and college, like I always had this fascination with cities, and whether it was, you know, we're on a road trip, so I always kind of want to go out of the way to the longer route to hit some of the major cities or this or that. Um, and then graduating college, of course, what I want to do, I want to I move to a, a city, which isn't that abnormal. But I moved to, seven years ago, moved to um, Alston, had a job up in Peabody. Um, and uh, fast forward to today, part of this church, married with a kid living in the city. And to some extent, like this all, traces all the way back to this initial decision I made in ninth grade to go on this trip. And so I understand, like, who's to say, like, if I didn't go on that trip, of course, I could have still ended up here. But nonetheless, that's the decision that kickstarted everything. That's the decision that kind of got me to where I am, that stirred my affection for cities that eventually led to me being in Boston. And so I'm sure many of you can see this thing in your own life. Like, you're here and you're going to grad school. And, like, I'm sure you can trace back, like, whether it's figuring out what you're passionate about and what you want to go to school for, what part of the world you want to live in, like what, what do you want to do with your life? And you can probably trace that all the way back to like whether it's a parent that's really influential to you or a teacher. Um, and you can kind of trace like, why are you where you are today? And, right, and for some of us, it's not so rosy, right? There are, there are negative sides to this too, right? It's not just like, where did you want to go to grad school or where did you want to go to college or where do you want to live? Sometimes it's, one night of bad decisions all of a sudden has a spiraling effect. A comment made to a family member in anger has really lasting impact and damage. We can look back and see kind of how these decisions or how um, the decisions we have made and on top of that, the things that have been done to us kind of lead us to where we are. And I think we see the same thing with Lot. Right, because we read chapter 19, and, and honestly, especially knowing this is Lot's last mentioning in the book of Genesis, like how, how, did, this, how, how did this happen? How did we get here? Right, I, I read this, and it's hard to see God in this passage. It's hard to see God at work. It's hard to see God in this situation, in this place. We don't just see that in chapter 19. We see that in chapter 20 as well. With, we, we're going to dive back into Abraham in a minute. But we see that our decisions kind of paved the road to where we're headed. And so that's kind of our, our, our main point, kind of big takeaways is this. Godly decisions lead to God-intended places. Godless decisions lead to godless places. Godly decisions lead to God-intended places. Godless decisions lead to godless places. In other words, you want to get to where God wants you to go, you have to involve God in this decision-making process. Like you want to be where God wants you to be. Like you think God wants more for you or wants you to be doing this particular thing or in this particular place. You have to involve him in that process, in your decisions, in your day-to-day life. And so we're gonna look at four things. Four things we see in these chapters as we consider this idea. We're gonna look at Lot's decisions, Abraham's decisions, God's decisions, our decisions. Sometimes I think alliteration is really cheesy, but today it worked. Lot's decisions, Abraham's decisions, God's decisions, our decisions. So first, Lot's decisions. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm dealing with like a little bit of a cold, so I might cough and clear my throat or big voice crack. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Um, scripture doesn't actually give us like a ton of insight into his life. Like he's kind of an afterthought with Abraham, right? The, the, the passages, the, the past eight or 10 passages have really focused on 
Abraham and kind of the things surrounding him. And, and Lot is one of those things. He's kind of a second thought. Um, but if you look closely over the past seven, eight chapters, you actually get a decent amount of, of like, if you look really closely, okay, Lot's making some decisions. Lot's making some decisions based on a few things. He's making decisions based on preference, unhealthy aspects of culture, and our passage, fear. You see Lot making decisions based on preference, unhealthy aspects of culture, and fear. So um, we're going to backtrack just a little bit and kind of hit a couple of places um, to kind of catch us up to where we are in Genesis 19. So just just track with me for a minute. Um, Genesis 13, if you remember, Abraham and Lot, they're going their separate ways. Right, so they both kind of accumulated a, a massive amount of wealth and, and possessions and um, their, their servants kind of started to get into fights with each other and Abraham and Lot didn't want strife between the two of them. So they say, we need to, we need to part ways. And it's interesting, you read that really closely um, and you examine the disposition in which both of these characters kind of make this decision, you start to see a pattern emerge. Right, so um, Abraham in humility kind of defers to Lot and he says, um, Lot, wherever you want to go, go ahead and I will go a different direction. And um, the text says that Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and looked beautiful and lush to the eye. This language ought to sound a little familiar. It kind of actually echoes Genesis 3 with, with Eve looking and seeing that the tree is, is good for food and, and desire to be making one wise. Um, and then on top of that, when you look at the way that uh, the scripture describes Abraham as making this decision, it says that the Lord lifted up Abraham's eyes. And so this same language is not unintentional. There's a, there's a picture being painted here of, of Lot lifting up his own eyes and based on preference, kind of making a decision about where to go. Compare that with Abraham, who in some way, shape or form waited on the Lord to lift up his own eyes and give him direction and kind of tell him where to go. And um, at first glance, this seems fine, right? Like in a siloed kind of like individual way, like this decision in and of itself seems fine. But there's a pattern that emerges. We keep going, right? Fast forward to Genesis 19. Um, Lot has been living in Sodom for quite a bit. And we we covered this last week. Um, But Lot was not being hospitable, right? If you look really closely, Lot is not being hospitable. And that's one of the indictments that God has against the culture of Sodom in Genesis 19, Right, Lot, he invites these angels, if you remember, to come stay with him, but he kind of puts a cap on it. He says, you can stay with me, but rise up early and go on your way. In other words, you can stay, but don't make me uncomfortable. And then it sarcastically says that he made them a feast and, and gave them unleavened bread. Like that's the equivalent of me saying, hey, come over, my wife and I are gonna make you like a really good dinner and then we give you like crackers. And it goes on and long story short, we see Lot just continuously making decisions informed by anything and everything except for God. We see him offer his daughters to the crowd of, of men. He lingers as the angels kind of tell him to, to get out of the city because the city's going to be destroyed. He's kind of hanging on still. We see his wife do the same thing and she loses her life because of it. And so all of these, all of these decisions, these ill-informed, godless, not including God in the decision-making process decisions lead him to where he is in our passage in Genesis 19. In our passage itself, right? Lot is living in a cave with his daughters. And look what got him there. Look closely. It's interesting. Verse 30, why are they there? It was the fear of their father. Verse 30, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. 
So I, I, I know this might be kind of jumble, but I'm trying to trace this. Again, all the way back, Lot's initial decision to look with his own eyes and without uh, asking God to see what looks good, that initial decision, step by step by step, leads him to where he is now in the cave, isolated. And so, um, yes, while Lot's daughters had a, a role to play and, and they uh, made sinful decisions as well, their father was the one that failed first. Lot's story is the embodiment of Genesis 6, verses 7 and 8, where Paul, he's kind of warning the Galatians. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. And so this is kind of a story of Lot's life. Right? When you read really closely, he's making decisions without consulting God. He's making godless decisions over and over and over again in the compound. And here's the kicker. Here's, here's kind of like the surprise. Like these decisions um, in and of themselves, like I was saying earlier, if you silo them off, they don't seem like the worst decision. Like, yeah, he looked at the land and this, this area looked well-watered. Like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Like we can maybe like understand in our minds, like, okay, yeah, the suburbs, like more space, all these things, like all these things look like, well-watered places to go. And then the second decision, right? Kind of making decisions based on the unhealthy aspects of culture. Sodom's inhospitality. We can kind of reason and get that in our own head a little bit. Like, yeah, I want to be hospitable. Like, uh, but um, I, just today's like a bad day. Like, right? Or making decisions out of fear. Certainly we can understand that too. And I had these, these, these kind of influences on our decision on my mind a lot the past two weeks. Um, like, like Bland mentioned, we're doing a Who's Your One campaign. And um, I, I kind of was just processing this idea of making decisions through my own preferences. And, and this really came to mind because um, I, choosing my one, I didn't want to choose the person that I chose. Like uh, the, the person that I chose, I, I realized would not align with my preferences because it would cost me a lot of time. I'd have to be a friend to this person in, in a deeper way. To be honest, there'd be some like awkward interactions, like not even talking about spiritual things. Like we don't, like there's not like a, a, a co- cohesive vibe, if you know what I mean, right? Like there's a cost to this person, to, to, to being in this person's life and to praying for this person. And honestly, I thought like that doesn't meet my preferences. I would not prefer to do that. And I'm sure some of you in, in the room can relate to this, like, yeah, you don't necessarily want this person to be the one that you continuously interact with about spiritual things, but God put it on your heart. Or for some of us, you haven't even signed up. Right, it's not that just you would prefer not to pursue someone at a certain cost. It's just at your current life stage, you'd prefer not to pursue or pray for anyone at all right now. Side note, it's not too late to sign up. So many other ways we make decisions more than just preference, right? I'd be remiss, like our city, our congregation, just um, a few things that this plays out with over and over again, time and time again, decision and decision again. You think about jobs, places of living, right? So often we make decisions around those things based purely on preference alone. Right? Too often we as Christians, especially, you know, the Western kind of American church, too often we as Christians think if we want something, then it must be God's will especially if it isn't obviously sinful at first, right? It isn't sinful to want a, a, a bigger house. It isn't sinful to want a different job or um, 
a certain space or a certain thing or a certain spouse. But when we make those decisions based on comfort and preference alone, then it becomes a sin. Right, with no consideration of God and what he's doing in and through you and in and through the people around you, then it becomes a sin. Like, can I just be blunt? Like the, the past like eight years of living here, one of the most painful things that happens over and over and over again in this city and in this church specifically is people making big life decisions and informing their community and friends rather than including their community and friends. Now, for some, I understand this may seem like too intrusive, but I want to challenge you with this. Like, this isn't a plea for you to let more people into your life. This is actually a plea for you to submit every aspect of your life to God and his plans. Because God works in and through his people. God works in and through the people that are around you. Because God works in and through his people for his people. That means God works in and through the people around you for you. And so to not let people into those big life decisions is to essentially not let God speak into those things in the way that he truly wants to. Now, what does this look like, right? How can we avoid being like Lot and making decisions based solely on preference? I mean, quite simply, you ask God and you ask God's people. And we'll, we'll at the end of the sermon, we'll kind of dive into that a little more deeply. But the worst thing we can do is make a decision and retroactively slap a sticker on it that says, this is God's will and then move forward. That's the worst thing we can do. These things, these decisions based on preferences, unhealthy aspects of culture and fear, these are the decisions that Lot made. Time and time again, we see him making decisions based on these things and not based on God and not including God and not talking to God. Before we move on to our next point, I should, I should mention too, this, this passage, it also answers some higher level questions. Right, so um, the, the previous uh, passage last week, Sodom and Gomorrah, it kind of closely parallels Noah's, Noah and, and the flood. If you remember, God kind of wipes out um, the, the world essentially because it's not righteous except for a few select people. And then fast forward Genesis 19, he does the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the question kind of arises, is this God hitting the reset button again and starting over with a group of righteous people? And we see immediately after the answer is no. We see immediately after that sin and um, especially this, this broken sexuality continues without wasting a second, it continues. And Lot and his daughters are experiencing the continued culture and sin that were uh, pervasive in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we see Lot's final note to us in the book of Genesis is really a roadmap of where unfaithful decisions brought him where decisions where he wasn't including God, where they took him. So that's our first point, what Lot did. Um, Lot's decisions. Second point, Abraham's decisions. Uh, Moving on to chapter 20, we won't spend nearly as long on this one because um, we covered, uh, Abraham essentially finds himself in the exact same position he found himself eight chapters prior. And by eight chapters, I really mean 25 to 35 years ago. Um, So we won't spend as long on this one. But to kind of summarize, um, again, Abraham and and Sarah, his wife, they find themselves in a nation where they're kind of thinking like, uh, we're a little bit at risk. And so um, Abraham, he decides again, just like he did the first time in Genesis 12, to lie about his wife being his sister. And so um, he lies about that to the king and the king Abimelech takes her into captivity. 
Um, and God comes to Abimelech in a dream and essentially says, you have a prophet's wife, you're a dead man. And um, interestingly, God and Abimelech, they kind of go back and forth. Abimelech talks with him. And eventually like the lie comes out and, and, and Abimelech and Abraham confront each other and talk about it. Um, and then Abraham and Sarah are sent on their way with uh, material possessions and um, things of that nature. So Abraham, again, if you've been tracking with us, he's had a story of peaks and valleys, right? He's certainly had kind of mountaintop experiences where he's communing with God, he's talking with God, he's involving God in his decision-making process. But then he has these valleys where he doesn't do that and he kind of does the opposite. Right? But that is kind of a differentiator between Lot and Abraham, right? Like Lot, we don't see any inclusion of God in his thinking. But Abraham, we do. It's imperfect, but we see it. In Genesis 20, we get a glimpse of Abraham's lower points again. We see him making decisions based not on God. Look what made him lie and deceive and endanger Sarah again. Look what made him make his decision. Verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, in light of all the promises that God has made Abraham, in light of all the ways that God has protected Abraham up to this point, and he's been walking with God for years. He's been walking with God longer than I've been alive. Like all these things that have happened year over year over year. And on top of that, he finds himself in the same exact situation he was in years ago. Like you, th- you would think it wouldn't be same sin, different year type of scenario, right? But it is. And he again doesn't trust God, doesn't trust that God will keep his word, doesn't trust that God will protect him. And so for us, we're probably not gonna find ourselves in a situation where we have to lie to a king about being married to our half-sister, but we too struggle to believe the promises of God. Do we not? Right? We too struggle to believe that, that God is who he says he is and he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. And we too make decisions as if God isn't God. We make decisions that don't include God. Godly decisions lead to God-intended places. Godless decisions lead to godless places. So this is what Abraham does. Third, God's decisions. And essentially what I mean by that is, is, is what God did. Um, now, there's good news for Lot, there's good news for Abraham, and there's good news for us in light of all this. Uh, if you've noticed so far in Genesis, it's, it's a lot about humanity being like really stupid, like really, really stupid and really, really evil and really, really sinful. And, and these things are kind of really at the forefront of a lot of the passages we read and as we work our way through the book. But as you examine closely, as I hope you've heard on almost every sermon, that actually underneath this uh, human stupidity and underneath this sin and underneath this evil, we have a God who's actually in control. And actually he's, he's the one pulling the strings and he's the one that are, are, is, is slowly making things right. That applies to Lot too in the situation he finds himself. Erwin Lutzer, who's a pastor, he noted bad decisions cannot be undone, but they can be redeemed. And so in these stories, God is working behind the scenes behind the scenes to redeem decisions that people make, to redeem the terrible things that mankind is doing, to redeem the decisions that Abraham and Lot have made. 
right? So if we believe Romans 8, 28 to be true, that for those who love God, he works all things together for good, then that means you too. All the poor decisions that you've made. God is working to redeem those. There's an obvious in Lot's story how this is happening. We actually have to look further ahead to see how God redeems this. So we see at the end, Lot's two sons um, are the beginning of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And these are two tribes or two kind of people groups that historically like have really opposed Israel and really opposed God's people. And there's a great distaste for them too. Like some scholars thought that um, Israelites, when they heard that someone was like from one of these tribes, they would actually have a little bit of like looking down on them, a little bit of disgust because it's like, I, I, know, how, I know how things started. And so the question is, how does God redeem that? Like what redemptive qualities are, are coming forth from this situation? And the answer is actually quite poetic. Because we know centuries later, a Moabite woman named Ruth, who existed because of this horrid story, married a man named Boaz. You know, Boaz and her had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, King David. Fast forward 28 generations, it gets to Jesus. And so though Lot and his daughters didn't live to see this, God redeemed the bad decisions that were made. And then in Abraham's story, we see God protecting his people in light of his plan. We see God redeeming time and time again, Abraham and his decisions, right? God has this plan. If you've been tracking with us for weeks now, God has this plan. And so far it has not been thwarted by human stupidity and human sin. Every story kind of has a climactic moment where that's the question being asked. Like, is, is this gonna be the downfall of God's plan? Is humanity going to somehow mess this up in a way that cannot be repaired? And the answer has always been no. We know as Christians on the other side of that story, we know that, that we have the fuller picture of what this plan is, right? We know that as God consistently keeps his promises and protects Abraham and his people, we know that eventually that leads to Christ. And so I think as, you know, as we dive into Genesis and, and, and I think it's easy to kind of get in the weeds as, as we should, we should um, word by word consider what is the scripture saying and what's going on here. But we would miss the point entirely if we forget the fact that all of this points to and anticipates Jesus. That in some way, shape or form, everything we talk about in the book of Genesis somehow is about Jesus, points to Jesus Right, that every failure that we continuously see over and over again, God's people failing to be faithful, where they failed, Jesus has succeeded. When we read time and time again, we read about Lot and his daughters and uh, we should feel this effect of like, how long, oh Lord, they are a deprived people. They need redemption. They need a savior. They can't do it themselves. We ought to be reminded that God is making the way through Christ for them, for you and I. Like you can't read the book of Genesis and not see brokenness everywhere. And I, I think about like the book of Genesis, like everything that's happening, how the world is really broken. I'm just like, is, we're not too far off here and now. We see evil every day. We see injustice every day. People being oppressed every day. 
whether it's in our own lives and our families and the news, that, that, that grasping desire, that need for a savior that we read, when we read Genesis, we say, you clearly need Jesus. We ought to feel that today. And ultimately we know, we talk about God redeeming decisions, that it's through Christ this happens. Through him, our bad decisions, our mistakes, our sins, our wrongdoings are being redeemed through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I um, just was kind of offhandedly thinking about Lord of the Rings as one does. Um, and I was just reminded of uh, Sam um, at the end of it all when uh, every, all the evil's done and he sees Gandalf. He just kind of asks Gandalf, is, is everything sad going to be untrue? So for us, all the sadness, all the evil, there will be a day where it's not just gone. It's somehow in some way, shape or form, it's untrue. It no longer is that. Through Christ, our bad decisions are being redeemed. I think there ought to be a comfort in that. Like, can you imagine having to bear the weight of redeeming your bad decisions? Now, it doesn't mean there's not things you need to do, right? You, we probably all need to go apologize to someone about something we did, something we said. There may be actions we need to take, but ultimately knowing that uh, God redeeming your decisions means that your decisions do not thwart God's plan for you, for your life and the people around you. I should say too, some of us in this room, we're kind of maybe on the, experiencing the opposite of this, right? It's like, we, we, it's not the decisions we've made. We, it's the decisions people have made against us. And so you're sitting here like, well, I, uh, I, I'm in this place of misery and suffering, like not necessarily because of what I've done, but because of what someone's done to me. And just two things to that. One, the opportunity for you to be so closely related, like intimate with Jesus there is insane. I think the people who suffer the most and experience the most pain have the ability to be the closest with Jesus. Because you wanna talk about bad decisions leading someone somewhere that they didn't make, just look at Jesus's life. And then secondly, God, doesn't, God is still in the redeeming process in that. He is still redeeming not just the decisions you made, but everything that's been done to you too. He redeems all of these things. He doesn't redeem us and save us to then just keep us at like an arm's distance either. He redeems us and saves us to bring us close. So as we close, we ask the final question or kind of talk about our decisions. Like all of this, what, what should we do? In light of all of this, what should we do? The simple answer is this. We should make godly decisions that lead to God-intended places. With God and with God's people. So two things. How do we do this? What do we do? Make decisions with God. This may seem obvious, but too often we don't do that. Right? Like there's a lot of smart people in this room and we think about a decision-making process 
Too often we go to pros and cons or um, even maybe phone a friend, like we'll involve God's people, but not God. Or um, we Google things till 3 a.m. to help make this decision, but we don't think to ask God. Like, what do you want me to do, God? (laughs) We also have to involve God's people. Now, what does that look like? You're considering a job, you're considering a move. That means you go to your community group and you ask them or you go to the guys or girls or or smaller subset of your community group and you say, hey, like I'm, I'm thinking about this new role. I'm thinking about this move. Like tell me, am I off here? Am I, am I missing something? Do you think this is a good idea? Do you think God would have this for me? A great example of this, many of you know Abby Johnson. Um, she was ordained as a deacon last week. Uh, and um, she uh, recently was considering a new role for work. Um, and uh, she's been working at Lab Central for some time, and I think she just wanted something new or um, a, very, a, a maraud of reasons. And instead of kind of making the decision in silo, she asked her community, a group of people around her, like, hey, would you pray about this for me? And she had some offers on the table Right, some more lucrative offers that offered her more money, more flexibility. And she asked the people around her, would you pray? And one of those people came back and said, I think you're, I think you're supposed to stay where you're at. Like, and I think, I think the reasoning was the eternal impact you will have on the relationships that are already formed are greater than the things you would gain in that new job. It's a great example of what it looks like to involve your community in decisions. Godly decisions lead to God-intended places. Godless decisions lead to godless places. So if this strikes a chord with you, you know, maybe you're in the process of making a big decision yourself. You realize, you know, I haven't, I haven't asked God. <laughs> like I haven't even talked to God about it. I would encourage you at any point over this next two songs, have, let that be your prayer. Like, God, what's in front of me right now? Can you speak into that, please? I need your direction. And then secondly, invite other people into it. I encourage you to do that in two ways. There'll be prayer leaders on the side after the service. I encourage you to just go up to them, explain your situation. Explain the decision that's in front of you and they would love to pray with you. And then thirdly, allow your community group to come alongside you in this. Whether that's the whole group or just a few people in it. If we want to make godly decisions that lead to God-intended places, we have to involve God and we have to involve God's people. There's no such thing as going at it solo as a Christian. There's just not. So we're gonna transition to a time of communion. Um, we do this to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Um, as we think about too, just the aspect, this idea of Jesus, he redeems our decisions. And he did this through the cross, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood. And so at any point over the next song, you can head out on the side and um, take the elements in the hallway. Uh, we can't have food or drink in the auditorium. This is um, a time that we uh, say, this is really only for people who have professed faith in Christ and are Christians. If you aren't a Christian, um, would encourage you just to, to think and marinate on these things. Um, and you can stay in your seats or if it makes you feel more comfortable because you don't want to stand kind of alone, you're welcome to walk outside with everyone else and then just come right back in. And we can do that at any point over the next song. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices. We thank you that you don't leave us just to our own decisions, but God, that you want to be involved in the way we think and make choices. That you have placed people around us to be involved in the way we think and make choices and make decisions. And ultimately, Lord, that you redeem our bad decisions, our sins. And that you redeem the bad decisions and sins that have been done against us. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. You know, we pray and ask these things. Amen.